Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. All right, let's get back on track. I want to speak in particular to the young people here today, particularly our graduates, and the rest of you can kind of listen in. But in reality, because I preached this message in early service and the graduates weren't there, in reality, this passage is good for every one of us. Because whether we're a young person or no matter how old we are, uh, in God's eyes, we're his children. And when you look at God's wisdom and God's power and God's uh, omniscience, we are certainly children compared to our Heavenly Father. But I do want to talk to our graduates because graduation is a rite of passage. Some things in your life will never be the same. And you can't go back. Um, those high school years, there's a certain sense of security. Now, different students are different. Uh, some can't wait to get out of high school. Uh, did you find them? Oh, okay. I, I already got those, but thank you. I don't have any sermon notes. Now I got a plethora of sermon notes, so. <laughs> All things happen for a reason. So graduation can be very exciting. Graduation can be very scary. Um, but it is an exciting time in all of your lives. You're now closer to becoming an adult than ever before. You're going through that passage from total dependence on your parents to adult independence and living on your own. You're at a point where making certain choices, and though this has always been true to a point, but now there are certain choices, and many of us in here with gray hair can attribute to that, that um, some choices can be life-altering, some for the good and some not so good. And so now you're going to be faced with, and this is God's plan, that we grow to maturity and learn to make our own decisions. But we have to realize that decisions in and of themselves um, are not just neutral. You know, choices change lives. Choices develop character. And the choices you make, as many of us can attest, will greatly determine the kind of life that you're going to have. Some for honoring Christ, others for other different situations. The culture, your peers, educators are going to exhort major influences in your life. And so you're going out into a culture very similar to the culture that Timothy went out into. It is not a culture that is a friend of grace. It's a very corrupt, toxic culture. You've often heard me say that I believe that the 21st century is mirroring the first century. We're not getting better as we move along. We're reverting. We're getting more corrupt, more insane. This is the kind of culture 
that you're going out into. This is Pride Month. These six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look. And yet we're going to designate a whole month, and we're going to highlight an abomination that God not only hates pride, but he hates this whole sexual perversion. This is what Satan does. He doesn't have many original thoughts. He takes what God intends for good and for blessing, and he turns it all around. And there's just things going on in the culture we can't hardly believe. We have a friend who uh, has children in school, in uh, high school in Lancaster County. There's a boy in the school who uh, identifies as a dog, so he just barks. The teachers can't ask him any questions because he just barks. There's a girl who identifies as a cat. So they actually put a litter box in the ladies' room for her. Now, I'm not making this up. Who could make up this kind of stupidity, this kind of insanity? But you see, this is where culture goes when it abandons truth and goes off in all different kinds of directions. Uh, we are told our children are indoctrinated into the fact that there's no God, that everything here is just by chance. Science is the ultimate truth. And they do that in many ways. They do it through education. They do it through entertainment. Many of you have seen the advertisement for Jurassic Park Dominion. And the major theme of that movie is that nature has dominion. Man doesn't have dominion. Man is to serve nature. Yet Genesis says that God gave man dominion over nature. But again, this is what Satan does. He turns everything inside out, upside down, and many times we become susceptible to it without even realizing it. So what I want to challenge you graduates is you have to begin to make your own decisions. You have to decide is the faith of my parents or my church or my pastors really my faith? Or am I just kind of inheriting that kind of faith? Let's look at Timothy here this morning. The Apostle Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's left Antioch and he's going north and he's going west. Paul and Barnabas had a parting of the ways over a young man named John Mark who abandoned them on their first missionary journey. We find out that John Mark and Barnabas were relatives. You know, blood is thicker than water, we often say. And it shows us the early church was not perfect. So here are two of the leaders in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, and the Bible says the contention was so sharp among them, they parted ways. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. Paul said, no, he abandoned us. And we find out later on that John Mark needed both a Paul and a Barnabas in his life. So the apostle Paul chooses Silas, and they go on retracing the steps from the first missionary journey, but they go backwards. God had an intention in that because they were going to come to a place called Lystra. And there was a certain young man that God had called into ministry. And his name was Timothy. And so he is to meet Timothy there. He doesn't know that yet. 
until he comes to the city. Maybe he met him before. We don't know for sure. So here's this young man, Timothy. And what we discover is that Timothy was from a racially mixed family. His father was a Gentile. His mother was Jewish. says that in Acts 16.1, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. And that wasn't uncommon in those days to have Gentile and Jewish marriages. It seems to appear that as you study the Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, in the book of Acts, that his mother had the predominant influence in the family and that she raised him on the Old Testament scriptures. 2nd Timothy 3.15, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. Actually, Timothy's name means honored of God. Not only was Timothy's mother come to be a believer, but also his grandmother. In 2 Timothy 1.5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. Is it possible that those three were led to Christ by Paul on his first missionary journey? Certainly possible. Somehow they heard the gospel and they came to faith in Christ. In 1 Timothy 1-2, Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Doesn't mean that he was his actual natural son, but it means that he was his spiritual father. And I grew up here at Grace Bible Church, used to be Grace Gospel Church, and I had a lot of spiritual mentors in my life, not just my parents, but people that I was very close to, some more than some of my own aunts and uncles, and they were spiritual mentors. And I'd encourage many of you adults, and I know many of you do that. You're involved with youth ministry or Awana or Sunday school, and you're helping to mentor these young people to follow the Lord. Well, Paul comes back seven years later. He meets Timothy. Acts 16 says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, this speaks volumes about this young man, because this was a very corrupt culture. Paul had been persecuted here, and he had, he had been stoned here, and yet Timothy was courageous in living out his faith in this corrupt city. You see, it was Timothy's knowledge of the Old Testament that prepared him to understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and the Son of God, and at some point, Timothy came to faith in Christ. Young people, if you have godly parents who have taught you God's word and lived it, you are blessed, like I was. My parents believed in boundaries. Uh, my brother Steve's here, and we, we were taught that way. Um, our younger brother, uh, brother uh, Randy, who came 11 years after me, uh, he got to do anything he wanted to, but that's, that's another story. But um, we were taught boundaries. Okay, first of all, you could go to the yard and play, then you could go up the street, and then you could go in the neighborhood. Uh, then when I became a teenager, my mother said, go down to the boulevard and play in traffic. I never understood why she said that. No, she didn't say that. But if you had godly parents, even one godly parent, young people, you are very blessed. Paul here says of Timothy, you've carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul did not water down for Timothy the reality of persecution. 
You know, we don't know much about persecution in this culture yet, but with all of the insanity that's going on, with all of the ungodliness, with all of the falsehood parading as truth, sooner or later, the only people that are going to stand up for truth is going to be the church. It's going to be Christians. And it's very likely the day may come when we're going to have to pay a price for that. And Timothy knew that. But Timothy, at this point, is living for the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul said to Timothy, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. The word perilous means hard, dangerous, difficult times. And so he challenges young Timothy, and I want to challenge our young people today. But this is true for every one of us, to be an example, to be a light, to be an example for Christ in this very dark, corrupt culture. And so he begins in verse 12, which is where I want to concentrate. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Now the question is often asked is, how old was Timothy? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some say he was in his 20s. Some say he was in his 30s or 40s. That's just conjecture. We don't know. Remember, people didn't live as long back then as they do now. Whatever it was, he was of such an age that there were people who considered him to be a, a young man. In fact, Paul himself says, don't let people despise your, your youth. He becomes the pastor we know at the church of Ephesus. And apparently there were older people in the church who were despising Timothy, looking down on Timothy because of his youth. And although this is what we call the pastoral epistles, it doesn't mean that this letter is only for pastors or those aspiring to be pastors. And Paul is reminding Timothy, you know, God called him into the ministry. Churches don't call people into the ministry. God calls people into the ministry. God lays it on a man's heart to commit his life to preach the gospel. All a church does is acknowledge the fact of God's call through a person's gifts and, and looking at their life. But yet there were people in the church that were despising Timothy because in Greek culture they chose age over youth. And so the word despise here speaks of contempt accompanied by damaging actions. In other words, Paul, Paul basically is saying, stop letting these older individuals in the church push you around. You know, God called you to this position, and God will call you away from this position. And so don't let these people in the church, don't, don't let them speak contemptuously of you just because you're young, or you don't have the experience maybe that they have. And so for Timothy, Paul puts all this in a spiritual context. Now, all of us as Christians should be developing the spiritual character qualities that Paul is going to talk to Timothy about. He tells him to be an example. Interesting word. The word example here is used of something making an impression with a hammer stroke, such as you would have metal or you would have a piece of leather, and then you would have a certain image or something and, and it would be on the end of a carved into a piece of metal, and you would place it on the other piece of metal or on the leather, and you would hit it with a hammer, and it would make an exact replication, an impression. So that's the idea of what Paul is saying here to Timothy. I want you to make 
an exact representation of these certain spiritual character qualities. It doesn't matter what those people are saying about you. You respond with a godly testimony, with a godly lifestyle. Now, the word be here is not the ordinary word of being. He's not just simply saying, this is kind of what you should be. The word means keep on becoming. Keep on becoming. None of us have yet arrived. We are all to be keep on becoming more like Jesus. And so he's saying to Timothy, these are five spiritual character qualities that needs to be ongoingly developed in your life as a testimony, not only to other believers, but as a testimony to the church. Many young people in this church are an encouragement to me, and I'm a grandfather. So age is not an excuse for living an ungodly life. I realize young people are going to make mistakes just like we made mistakes. There are many things that call our attention to, but yet Paul is telling us through Timothy that even though we're young, we can still have an impact for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody here probably counted ahead in verse 12, and you said, wait a minute, there are six things he mentions, not five. Well, the words in spirit are not in the original text. They were supplied by the translator. So there are five spiritual character qualities that these Timothy is to be continually developing through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God in his life. The first one is excellent speech in word. The ESV says, set the believers an example in speech, in speech. Now, of course, this isn't just for, quote, unquote, young people. This isn't just for the, the graduates. I know that when I was young, I was very susceptible to peer influence. You know, everybody wants to be cool. Everybody wants to be in the in crowd. Um, Paul is saying, and through Timothy, you know, what kind of example am I setting in my conversation? Now, that's true for all of us. And we all should ask ourselves that question. What kind of example am I setting with my conversation? Is it caustic? Is it critical? Is it judgmental? Is it demeaning? Is it profane? Or is it kind? Is it helpful? Is it encouraging? Is it spiritual? What is the character of the words that are coming out of my mouth? That's in essence what he's talking about here. Now, there's this, every now and then, some bright young person comes up with an idea, or younger fella or woman. You know, swear words really aren't swear words. It's just language. Um, so it really, it really doesn't matter what you, this is just culturally conditioned. The culture has decided that saying certain words are swear words. Well, the Bible doesn't take that approach at all. And the Bible talks about speech that is godly and speech that is ungodly. And I, one counsel I would give to you young people is make the book of Proverbs a part of your devotional life. Make the book of Proverbs a part of your devotional life. There's so much practical application and instruction in the book of Proverbs, not just on this area of speech, but on the character and quality of our lives. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about the power and the effect of speech, both Old Testament and New Testament. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. You ever said something, and as soon as you say it, it's like, you try to get it back. You wish you could grab it and stuff it back into your mouth. That's never happened to me, but I'm sure some of you have experienced that. No, we've all experienced that. We speak without thinking. We react. But that's no excuse. Because my words reveal what's in my heart. My words reveal what's in my heart. That demeaning, caustic, critical, angry speech didn't just pop up out of nowhere. The Bible is very clear on that. My words reveal what's in my heart. Because the Lord himself made that connection between the mouth and the heart. Here in Luke 6:45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Do you hear that? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Young people, old people, you try to live a double life, you try to keep a certain part ungodly part of your life private, your mouth's going to betray you every time. Because sooner or later, what's in my heart is going to bubble up out of my mouth. And that's why the Lord talks about the fact we'll give an account for the things that we say. Matthew 12, by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Do you realize much of the popular, vulgar language made up of often one-syllable words in our culture? It doesn't make you sound cool. It makes you sound like a fool. And our culture just can't seem to have a book, a movie, a TV show, an article on the Internet. And everybody thinks, you know, oh, this has mature language. I would say anything but mature language. This has immature language. The people can't think of anything else to say, so we grab these one-syllable words of vulgarity, and somehow we think this makes us mature, or this makes a certain emphasis. It doesn't add anything to the conversation. It certainly takes away from the character of the person speaking. Our words either are healing or they're hurting. Ephesians 4, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So many times I've told you that passage in Ephesians, the word corrupt means to tear down, to cut down. The word edify means to build up. And he talks about the fact that our speech should be known for its grace. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Would anyone listening to my conversation conclude that I was a Christian? Or would they be very surprised to find out that I was a Christian after listening to me talk for a while? Or interact with my buddies? and my friends, or how I respond when I get impatient or when I get angry. 
Because you see, when our life gets jostled, what's in my heart's going to spill out. So what comes spilling out of my mouth? It says what's in my heart. Second thing he talks about is blameless actions, blameless actions in conduct. Timothy was to be modeling a pattern of godliness. Now, the New Testament contains many admonitions linking belief and behavior. Many admonitions. James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Words are vitally important, but actions likewise are important. And in many ways, our actions speak louder than our words, because very often we can talk a good game, we can say things we're spiritual, but what, what does our conduct reveal? How are we really living? What's the character of my life? We need godly young men and young women whose lives are above reproach. That in itself will be a powerful testimony to this corrupt culture where my generation was the same way, your generation is even more so, that what we, call, what we considered as moral, as good, is, is now just, you know, old-fashioned, and, and why can't you live together without being married? Why do you have to wait till you're married to have sex? You know, this, and if you do, you, you're made fun of, because again, that's what Satan does. He just takes what is godly and good, and he totally corrupts it. And he convinces people that right is wrong, and wrong is right, and that's what he does. Don't fall prey to Satan's ways. You know, youth is a great gift. Talk to many people here. Youth is a great gift. Went to my doctor not too long ago, and he said, Darren, you need to realize you're not 18 again. Oh, really? Thank you. I didn't, I didn't know that. I'm glad you pointed that out to me. Youth is a great gift. You have strength. You know, I, I like to say, and you guys have heard this before. I've heard him say this before. Yeah, I remember when he said this before. As I am, so you will be. As you are, so I was. But you will be if the Lord gives you grace and years to live. And the flower of youth will fade. The strength of youth will fade. And you can keep yourself in shape and you can do the best you can, but you can't fight time. It's inevitable. And so youth is a great gift. You can either invest it for eternity or you can waste it on worldly pleasures. And we could go up and down these aisles and we could hear testimonies of some who wasted their youth and wish they could go back and reclaim some lost opportunities. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans. He literally sold his health to reach the Native Americans and died at the age of 29. Jim Elliott was so impressed with David Brainerd's testimony that he went into missions. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott, who was martyred along with his friends in Ecuador. And because of that story, many, many, that next generation, that generation at that time of young people, many went into ministry, many went to the mission field. 
So you don't have to wait till you're old to make an impact with your life. You can make a great impact, I think in many ways a greater impact in this culture, which is so enamored with youth, if you're living for Christ and being a testimony. Unconditional love is the next one. Be an example in love, cape love, agape love, the love produced by the Holy Spirit, the love that is the love that God is. It's a self-sacrificial love. Um, you know, we live in the entitled generation. Newsflash, hey, hey, world doesn't owe you anything. It doesn't owe you a living. Government doesn't believe that. They want to give you all kinds of stuff. You think that's coming with no strings attached? <laughs> Somebody gives you something for nothing. They want something in return. No, my parents taught me the value of hard work, the value of personal responsibility. Many of these, these, these virtues and values our culture mocks at. But again, read the book of Proverbs. Listen to how wise Solomon talks about labor and the importance of labor and gaining wealth by labor, not by ungodly means. The person who gives the most loves the most. See, when we're young, starts out as being kids, then we move into our teen years, we're pretty much known as takers, you know. And, and that's kind of okay because, you know, we, especially when we're younger, we need our parents, we need their help, we need people to invest in our lives. But part of maturity is learning to go from being a taker to a giver, to be someone who is not just getting from other people, but giving, first of all, to the Lord, and then helping others. Last two, very quickly, continuous faithfulness. When he talks about in faith, this is not believing faith or sanctifying faith. This is faithfulness, faithfulness. And if there's one quality, young people, that you need to develop is faithfulness, unswerving commitment. Whenever I counsel a young couple for marriage, I always tell them, you're going to be setting patterns in the first year of your marriage that are to continue all the way through your marriage. It's just the way it is. So young people, you can begin to establish certain patterns in your life, patterns of faithfulness, patterns of commitment, patterns of keeping your word. Because you'll find even in the church, what people say and what people do necessarily aren't the same thing. Or what people say they're going to do doesn't always happen. Talk is cheap. But learn commitment. Learn faithfulness. Especially to the Lord. And to his people. And the great news is faithfulness requires no special training. After church today, we're going to hold a class on faithfulness. How to be faithful. Well, there are some maybe principles, but anybody can be faithful. It doesn't require a certain level of education or whatever. You high school students, you college students, you've completed certain levels of education. And I commend you. You're like many of us. You've been, you know, 
educated beyond your intelligence. And we, we've all been to that point. We understand that. But there's no special training to be faithful. A faithful man, the Bible says, is hard to find. And then lastly, practical purity. Practical purity. Really, I could spend the whole message just on this point. But you already know that. You young people already know that this is the area for many of you, particularly you guys. It's going to be the greatest challenges that you're going to face. All these other challenges are true as well. But in this sex-drenched culture, where everything, just everything is permeated with sexuality. Now we want to sexualize our children. You know, the younger the better. When their minds aren't even, they're not even developed enough to understand this. But no, no, we want to, we want to sexualize our children. How ungodly is that? There's a lot of people I don't want to be, or wouldn't want to be, who are going to stand before Almighty God one day. You know, Jesus said, you, you offend one of these little ones who believe in me. It'd be better if somebody tied a millstone around your neck and were cast in the depths of the deepest sea. And that's not like some little stone. That's like this huge round millstone. God keeps very precise records. The Bible is not shy about warning us against sexual temptation. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, even here's a man who has uh, is spoken well of by the believers, and yet Paul felt it necessary to write to Timothy, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We fool ourselves if we think that lust can be entertained and then contained. We fool ourselves. Well, I can entertain lust, but then I can contain it. No, no. It's like putting a match to dry prairie. It's just going to whoo. And so it takes real intention to stay away from this because it's everywhere. It's just everywhere in this culture. And it's not going to get any better. It's, it's going to get worse. And so it doesn't matter what your peers say. It doesn't matter what the, you know, the pundits on TV say and the popular people say and how they live, you know, like alley cats. And everybody thinks it's wonderful. You have to decide what you're going to do. Are you going to live for the Lord? You know, victory is found in constant confession and in continual commitment. I want to leave you with one final challenge. And that is from my favorite Old Testament book, the book of Joshua. Joshua is at a place called Shechem, which is a very significant, has a great spiritual significance throughout the, the book of Joshua, but we don't have time to go into that. So Joshua's at the end of his life, and he's at the end of his ministry. So what he does is he gathers all the elders of Israel, and this is his last will and testament to the, to the nation. And he says, now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a decision you will have to make. God is so gracious, he gives you a choice. And he says, but you're going to serve somebody. Well, no, I'm my own person, and like my generation, hey, we're the freedom generation, you know, we, we can just go do what, what makes us feel good or whatever. No, no, choices have consequences. And you can't be one of those, or don't be one of those foolish people that thinks, you know, everybody that's going down this road and served themselves, served the gods of the culture, the gods of pleasure, whatever. And they've all ended up in a train wreck. But that's not going to be me. I'm smarter than that. I'm wiser than that. No, no, you're not. You go down that road, it has certain ends, and that's where you're going to end up. Unless you repent and turn around. But God is so gracious, he gives us a choice. So decide who you're going to serve. Because you're going to serve someone. You're either going to serve Satan or you're going to serve the Lord. It's your choice. But choices have consequences. And that choice has eternal consequences.